0: When you become a member, enter Suburban Folk in the podcast that you heard about them. Your host, Greg Rotersheimer, is now a designated financial coach. If your financial situation is causing you stress because of debt, budgeting, or saving for retirement, and anything in between, contact me to discuss how I can coach you to financial success. Email me at greg at suburbanfolk.com or call me at 804 592-1871 for a 15-minute free consultation to get started with your plan health, travel, finance, parenting, and home improvement. This is the Suburban Folk Podcast. $250 a month into my child's 529, from the month that they start kindergarten, I should be able to pay for 80% of my child's college. Because I don't trust that most people will eat their vegetables, right. so usually our kind of standard
1: is three servings of vegetables per meal.
0: You take something, like a, a 2 by 6 and you cut it with a circular saw. That's like a superpower.
1: Those middle school years are not as fun, but... At that age, you're still willing to talk to you?
0: Welcome to the Suburban Folk Podcast. I'm Greg Rotersheimer, your host. In today's episode, I talked to Matthew Hongoltz Hetling. He's the author of the new book, A Libertarian Walks Into a Bear. It features the town of Grafton, New Hampshire, and what happens when a group of libertarians come to town and try to make it their utopia. There's a lot of colorful characters, and by the way, there's bears as well. Matt is a freelance journalist specializing in narrative features and investigative reporting. He's been named a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, won a George Polk Award, and been voted Journalist of the Year by the Maine Press Association, among numerous other honors. His work has been featured in Foreign Policy, USA Today, Popular Science, Atavist Magazine, Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting, the Associated Press, and others. Thanks, Matt, for joining the show today. And also thanks for giving me a preview copy of the book a lot going on and a lot I'd love to unpack and get the behind the scenes stories about your time in Grafton and just how the story came together. How's it going for you?
1: It's going great, Greg. Thank you so much for having me on. I love that uh, Suburban Folk Podcast is growing by leaps and bounds, and I'm I'm, uh, really happy to be a part of it.
0: We do our part here in a little old suburbia, so I appreciate it. And let's dive into your background a little bit as far as in journalism. And this is your first book. So can you also talk about what prompted the particular story and then just how it unfolded?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, As far as my background in journalism, uh, I came to journalism relatively late in my life. I I was in my 30s before I started working as a professional journalist. And so I already had some, some kind of like life experience and some Outsider perspective, I would say. Um, And that has proved to be an asset, you know, as I've kind of like uh, gone through journalism. I've uh, uh, achieved a lot of success in the field. And I was always wanting to, you know, write a book, you know, that was kind of like on my bucket list, uh, kind of a lifelong dream of mine. You know, I was working for various uh, different newspapers and magazines and, and, you know, kind of like trying to push the boundaries of the sort of writing that I was uh, into doing, you know, kind of like more long-form narrative writing. And I was working for my daily newspaper called The Valley News, uh, serves the Upper Valley region, uh, which kind of like is split by the Connecticut River on the border of New Hampshire and Vermont. And I was sent on an assignment to go down and interview a woman who was having a hard time, uh, she, she was kind of like having a, a fight with the VA over whether she could access her veteran benefits. And while I was interviewing her about that, you know, I drove down there and it's a, a small New England town, you know, so there's a lot of trees, you know, not not too many people, not too many businesses or anything. And I went into this woman's house Uh, And she was very gracious, you know, and invited me in, kind of eager to have someone to talk to about this problem and and this war that she'd been fighting uh, against the VA. And so, yeah, she's kind of like showing me around her house and there's a bunch of cats in there. I'm just kind of like chit-chatting about the cats because I I like animals and I like cats. And she says uh, just kind of offhandedly, oh, yeah, you know, um, uh, I used to let these cats outside, but that was before the bears came. And I was like, "Wow, that is a really interesting statement." Yeah. <laughs> so I was immediately like, "Who wants to talk about veteran benefits when we can talk about bears?" <laughs> uh, so let, let me uh, let me zero in on that a minute, and, and please uh, please explain that statement. And so she told this uh, kind of incredible story of how the bears in the town of Grafton had um, become much more bold and aggressive uh, than they had in Grafton in the past or in other places uh, in this woman's experience. And her own personal issues with the bears began when she was out in her backyard and she's uh, just kind of enjoying a summer evening with a, a few, three kittens kind of wrestling each other in the grass And a bear comes charging out of the underbrush and grabs up two of the kittens uh, in its mouth and proceeds to kind of like bolt off with them. Uh, And then she sees it a moment later, kind of like emerge on the far side of the underbrush at a a safer distance. And it and its cubs are eating her kittens. (laughs) Uh, And so it's kind of like, you know, a little absurd, a little horrific. Um, if you have a very black and bleak sense of humor, you might find that uh, comical in some ways. But she was certainly horrified and disturbed. That kind of started a pattern of bears eating cats in this community, uh, which was just one of many unusual behavior behaviors that they exhibited. that worried people because there was kind of a working theory that cats were kind of like a gateway drug to eating people, and so, so they really didn't want to let the, the bears get out
0: of control. Yeah, what a turn. And I agree. Bears are way more interesting than just talking about the VA. <laughs> Real quick question, just even going back to the career change, because we focus on that uh, somewhat regularly, actually, especially when we do finance. What were you doing up to that point, And what made you pull the trigger and go into uh, journalism in your 30s?
1: Well, when I was a kid, I always wanted to write for a living, um, but I never really never really saw a path to make that a reality. I, I guess you would say you know I, I kind of like my school grades were not very impressive um you know I, I had some uh, a, a real lack of interest and motivation in school and uh, even though I would typically excel in English classes because I, I had such a, a love for reading and writing that wasn't really translating into kind of like firm guidance or mentorship that that might have channeled me in a, a career. And so I really wound up kind of like a drift where I did a variety of uh service jobs. I got really into uh student politics uh when, when I went to college uh, and kind of started a student newspaper out of uh, out of that interest, uh, but it folded as a business venture. And then I transitioned into like a five-year career as a uh, poker player where I played online poker, and that was uh, dicey, no benefits. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, after the poker bubble burst, I was really kind of like – A little bit of a bad way where I was just kind of like casting about for whatever type of job I could do. Uh, So I I was not employed full time. I was stitching together an income from all of the jobs that you could get with no criteria. I would be one of these guys at the uh, Sam's Club with a hairnet on offering free samples of cheese or dispensing like Tylenol uh, to seniors, all those sorts of jobs. I did some social work for a while, which surprisingly has a very low entrance bar and, and does not have the sort of, yeah you know, society doesn't value that job as it should. But you know, I worked with children who had developmental issues. And so I was just kind of like, you know, casting about for those sorts of jobs. And my wife uh, suggested that I write an article for uh, the local newspaper that, you know, basically, I go to them and see if I could do some sort of a freelance one-off piece for them, and so I wrote a newspaper article for thirty bucks. That experience was really rewarding for me. Uh, you know, I wrote it about the the local movie theater that was having a hard time converting to to digital projectors, uh, which was the story for a lot of theaters at the time. That kind of led to me pursuing other. Writing opportunities with local newspapers, and that eventually landed me a full time job uh, at a very small rural weekly newspaper. And that was kind of like when I when I got Roland.
0: Lesson to be learned for folks is you hear about people saying be careful of a backup plan because you'll just default to that backup plan. And based on the jobs that you're talking about, I'm guessing you didn't really view those as a backup plan at all. So (laughs) once you found the niche in writing, uh, you were probably pretty all in, is what I'm hearing. I enjoyed
1: a lot of the other goofy jobs. You know, like I, I drove a taxi for a little while. At the same time, there was a very Difficult needle to thread when it came to just paying the very basics and bills, you know. And so, my wife and I were really struggling financially to to the extent where, you know, we we were uh, counting pennies at, at Walmart trying to figure out how many meals we could make out of beans and rice. You know, it was very, very tight for a while there. Yeah, writing was. It seemed like a path where I could grow professionally, you know, like, like there was a future in it, uh, which is kind of ironic because the, the journalism industry is is uh, struggling so much as a whole. But you know, I, I kind of like had a foothold in and I was clicking very quickly with kind of like what the job requirements and skills were. So I was like excelling right away. And that was giving me a lot of good uh, feedback. So that that was like a
0: life preserver
1: that that had been thrown to me. And I I just clung on to it and paddled for all I was worth.
0: Well, uh, clearly you've found your niche and the the accolades and recognition that you've received already is certainly evidence of that and I can say firsthand reading your book it I think uh, this hopefully will be the first of many for you it I have to throw this comparison out and I'm almost afraid if you're gonna think I'm completely off here but when I was in elementary school no not elementary school when I say in high school that would be a terrible one for elementary. Uh, I had to read Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. And I was getting a little bit of that vibe. The stories are, of course, not at all the same, but just the vibe of these are real people. Of course, anybody that's been to Savannah knows it's got its own style to it. And then just the people's paths unfold and so on in that story. So uh, that's at least where my headspace was in just the the style of writing and wondering how all of these people are intertwining and of course as the title indicates what does a libertarian have to do with a bear so what what do you think does that seem a little bit of of a parallel at least as far as the style is concerned
1: yeah you know, i i would have never thought of it uh on my own but yeah no that that's a that's a very good analog i think yeah like uh yeah you know there there's There are all these colorful communities made up of colorful characters who have their own quirks. And as much as America is becoming like a a very uniform place with with the same strip malls and gas stations, uh, there are still very local regional stories and and cultures emerging that, that are very much shaped by kind Of, like, the weird and unique circumstances where they are, and so I think that's what we see in the Midnight, uh, the, the Garden of Good and Evil. I hope that's what people see in the town of Grafton, uh, which I uh I describe in the book. Yeah, there's uh, there's weird stuff going on, and people are not cookie cutter uniform, people are nuts.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, and and a couple of themes, even to take there for people, a with. Covid And who knows when travel internationally, at least anyway, is going to open up. So I know I fall into the category and I think a lot of others do of looking more in your backyard for places you may be overlooked and likely a small town like Grafton. I'm sure most people can think of small towns where they're at, or uh, as we talk more about just New England as a whole, there are stories to be told. There are absolutely colorful people. And I think another lesson to be learned, and again, this will get into walking us through the research process and how long that all took, is maybe with people's ability to become more remote workers and being more flexible with their time, most of the travel people I talk to say, if you can spend more than just that one week that you get of PTO and do everything you possibly can and and spend more time to actually see what a particular area is about, see the culture if it's a completely different culture and then uh, just the stories that people have to tell. Do you see any parallels there? And then also tell me how you went about interviewing everybody and then having this story unfold
1: yeah yeah no i i agree with that uh a hundred percent that uh it can be very hard to kind of like get outside of the tourist bubble get away from the things that you can spend money on and instead go and find the things that the the local people do that are you know inexpensive and, and reflective of the local unique community that's there Uh, And in Grafton, it's actually in many ways, you know, in the broad strokes, it's very like a lot of other small New England towns. And so if folks are are traveling uh, in that region, there are just endless, beautiful little hamlets, you know, kind, kind of like nestled in the woods where they have their local trails that are uncrowded can lead to some breathtaking views and natural wonders to see. There are local swimming holes. One of the things that makes New England unusual is that communities kind of get together for these annual town meetings or special town meetings where they're actually like, the entire public is getting together in the same place at the same time and kind of debating issues like whether or not the town should be buying a fire truck that year, you know, or, or whether uh, the old one can, can be repaired uh, to get through another year. And so there there's this real kind of like sense of um, control over one's own destiny. They're bound to to a great extent by federal and state laws, but at the same time, like they they have a lot of say in how they should approach life and community and issues like liberty versus safety and all of that. And Grafton is a great example of that.
0: Yes, as is loud and clear. Again, as, as the stories unfold, one other before we get into some of that, comparing to what's going on now, nobody, of course, could have seen what was happening from the very beginning of the year and where we are. But now that it has unfolded, do you find any parallels or I hate to say ironic, that's probably not the right word, but with uh, the different personalities and the extreme version of people wanting to be libertarian and and how that might affect somebody else. It, do you think that that's almost a litmus test for now what we're seeing nationally with mask wearing and people taking different studies interpreting them in different ways to say the least.
1: So yeah, libertarians, yeah, you know, their whole philosophy is very much centered on the idea of freedom, yeah, you know, and and freedom as uh in, in every flavor and every decision. So they look at any tax obligation or rule or regulation uh as an impediment to that freedom. And so in grafting that that gets taken to an an extreme and comical degree uh but yeah there's also absolutely like a, a clear parallel to the uh response by large segments of the American public to public health and government warnings and regulations and restrictions about masks you know and it's it's really odd to me how the mask thing has uh taken on such life. We've seen stores with signs up that say no shirts, no shoes, no service for decades. I've seen that sign ever since I, I could read. And I never heard anybody talking about that as an impingement to their freedom. But now, you know, the idea that someone might have to wear a mask is become a much bigger symbol as a onus on freedom than I ever thought possible. Um, But I I do see the parallels there. And and um, I've actually written an op-ed that that I hope will be published soon uh, that kind of makes those parallels very clear. You know, like the Republican Party right now has shown that it is not really so much about any uh, principled stance, in my opinion, uh, anymore. You know, like uh, there's no principle that makes a party – go after entities like the post office and the weather service. Their only guiding principle right now is freedom. You know, the the, uh, Republicans right now in America want the freedom to do whatever they want to do, and they don't want any restriction or argument or insinuation that might be wrong. Uh, And I don't really have to wonder about how America would look if that view took firm hold in America and if there was a real triumph of that worldview and a steamrolling of opposition, uh, because that's what I saw in Grafton. You know, I I saw kind of what happens to a community and and what uh, that future vision of America would look like when all of the rules are kind of like shot to shit and all of the taxes are rolled back and and all the services are starved and, and defunded. And it's, it's not a very appealing portrait. Or even
0: just on the topic of logic, because I'll even raise my hand and say that on a lot of areas, I would describe myself as libertarian. Again, not to the degree as it's described by the, the folks that are profiled, but continuing that mask comparison, that that's a great point that there you are required to wear pants when you go out or you can be arrested (laughs) for indecent exposure. And and, right. So why is that necessarily going to be any different for masks? But also on the other end, uh, for example, we've done a number of episodes at this point about uh, schools and the effects on kids. And uh, I actually, we opted to put our kindergartner into private school when they public school decided to do all virtual. And basically my premise is you can't convince me that that a five-year-old is going to really get much out of virtual learning, but hey, private school can have the smaller class sizes that make it reasonable to do social distancing the place we're actually at has a lot of outdoor space so they are outdoors and then of course this goes back to the masks and yeah from my standpoint is if that's the thing that's gonna get education for example back to uh, where it can be please (laughs) let's
1: let's let's do that
0: but but where i'm going with that is you know i I assume that's logical and again I think that's another loud and clear as we go through the different people that come to Grafton, what they perceive to be logical and what they perceive to be part of their freedoms and rights doesn't necessarily jive with the other people. And of course, it very much doesn't jive with some of the basic uses of government, a la roads and fire departments and things (laughs) like that. And you, you. people i think maybe take for granted how quickly things could devolve uh, if if everything was was out the window and and then back to your point as well that taking a small town like grafton you can see that as a as a use case as an extreme and i assume that's of course no accident that that's why the bears are in there as well. Well, it doesn't get any more extreme than being eaten by a bear. is <laughs> something that you're worried about. Uh, it, it doesn't get any more final and horrific than that as, as a warning sign. So it, loud and clear, I think the message is there.
1: Uh, so, and, and just to kind of like describe what the libertarian end of it is in Grafton. Um, so in 2004, the national libertarian community decided that they wanted to uh, identify an existing community, have a bunch of libertarians move there from all over the country, and then kind of like take it over and, and turn it into uh, a, a utopia that that would uh, reflect their ideals of liberty and self-reliance. And so a bunch of libertarians came to Grafton. But what was a little unusual is that libertarians are kind of an extreme ideology driven group and this project the, the people who could actually pull up roots and move across the country to this little town they were kind of like the extreme of the extreme you know either they were very wealthy and weren't tied into like a 9 to 5 job or they were very poor and didn't have any job worth holding on to right and so the folks who came to this town were uh really out there uh to the extent that uh some of them were advocating for you know consensual cannibalism <laughs> right bum fights you know where, where you pay uh indigent people money to to fight each other for for spectator sport you know they they were really at the very far edges of it, and that is part of what made the expression of libertarianism in Grafton uh, to be so dangerous. And the tie-in to the bears, uh, which we get to, uh, you, you might get to this uh, in a little more depth later, but um, is that because they weren't following state recommendations on how to manage bears, they were kind of unknowingly shaping the culture and the behavior of the bears that lived in that community, because it it was a shared environment with these big, dangerous animals kind of uh, living in the town as well.
0: Clearly, and and the way you've laid out the book, you could sort of see something coming. Now, I have to say, this is, again, just me as a reader. When you start out with some of the historical accounts, and of course, like a young boy, I think basically getting snatched up and, and so on every single initial encounter, I'm sort of treating it like jaws, <laughs> like, uh, you, you know, like you mentioned the cats and, and uh, the, the llama is another, which of course that's a, that's a great sort of ending for that part. But I'm just, I, I'm, I'm waiting for, for, you know, sort of the, the carnage to go on at every step that it took. It took me a while to to step back and, and get more into, I think what you should really be taking out of it is, of some of those social, themes and, and, and what should be out there. But but I will I will say I'll again jokingly because it's it's well laid out and I appreciate all of the historical pieces in there. But uh you, you threw me off at first in in the beginning sort of elements. Yeah,
1: yeah no uh, well, th- thank you for reading it and, and thanks for saying that. Yeah it is like it is kind of funny in that um uh I really go deep into the history of the town and kind of show like why Grafton was unique you know, like uniquely situated to be chosen for the site of of this, uh, uh, social experiment and people, you know, my, my editor at, um, at the publisher said, you know, you could say that this is a story about people, but you could also say it's, uh, you know, you can equally say that it's a story about bears, you know? So it, it really is kind of, um, weighing those two, those two, Uh, camps against one another. So uh, folks who were there purely for the bear stuff, uh, they're going to learn a little something about uh, society and culture as well. And those who come in, you know, wanting like a meaty political story, uh, they're going to get some exciting bear stories.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Well, again, I'm taking a big detour here, I know, because I want to get back to just – when you're having to really hit the pavement and get all of the research. But one other parallel that I want to get your thoughts on, like you said, there's all these out there people that pick this town to come there. Now, granted, it's not a big town. So I guess relatively speaking, you're not affecting the lives of a huge amount of people. But speaking of other paranoia and fears that are being stoked in today's world, of your community being taken over uh, and and you have nothing that you can do about it. And gosh, there's been the different stories of, you know, people talking about their guns and and so on and so forth. Uh, Similar question. Do you see also parallels there to what, the libertarian group did to say we're coming to this town and (laughs) obviously they're not asking anybody else in the town, how that's going to affect them and what's going to happen. Do you think we almost could have an adverse effect there that somebody would read it and say, Oh my gosh, it happened in Grafton maybe a different group of people than (laughs) uh, uh, than maybe other people are afraid of, but it could happen. Well, like this could be a
1: a blueprint for, uh, for nutty, subcultures to come and take over. exactly yeah to just <laughs> exactly to pick
0: pick out a place and they just oh, come God. in and there's nothing you can do about it I,
1: I hope not uh, Greg <laughs> well, um, I, I suppose you know uh, you you could uh, uh, people might also uh, use my book to smack one another upside the head and I, hope, <laughs> I hope I'm not blamed in either case
0: <laughs> yeah and, and yeah to be clear I'm not saying oh how dare you at all but uh it <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. just that sort of being extra paranoid of like uh oh you know hopefully people don't take sort of <laughs> this is a validation that that everybody's out to get them in some way or or they're somehow out of control although when we get to some of the health part I'm definitely interested in your take of um uh the the parasite and the, the whole section there as far as you know w- w- People's decision-making and how much of it, I guess, is really their own. But again, going all the way back to – and you you really having to get the whole story fleshed out. So how long were you in Grafton? How did you go about starting from, here's somebody that told me a bear ate her cats, to how do I unpack (laughs) this giant story?
1: Well, like when I heard about the bear-cat story, I was really – like just so tickled by it and so taken by the idea that bears were were doing this. And I thought that there were some interesting things there to be said about like the extent to which people were being manipulated, not only by the bears, but by the cats, you know? And so uh, I started knocking on doors in the town and asking if they had other bear stories, you know, like, I'm interested in in bear stories in Grafton. And, you know, everyone who agreed to talk to me had some sort of a bear encounter. And many of them were, were, you know, funny, disturbing, sad, or, or all three rolled up in one. I wound up pitching An idea uh, about bears versus cats for the Atavist magazine. That was eventually given a green light. And so I spent probably about six months researching that article pretty heavily. After I wound up writing that article, it led to the opportunity to write the book. And so then I went back to Grafton and I spent another, you know, six months talking to people there and. Uh, knocking on more doors and doing more kind of like on the ground research or, or you know, reporting it as a journalist might say. It was really kind of like divvied up, but you know, for a long time I would just kind of like drive down there on a Saturday to kind of like see what's going on in Grafton today. Bop around town and, and talk to people and stop into the library and, and what have you.
0: Forgive me if I missed the part of, when going from like the bears and cats did the concept of the The libertarians coming in and and the changes to the town when did that first come up in your research and and become like a, a primary part of the story
1: it didn't take me long to start uh, once I started seeing this bear behavior being different from other bear behavior and other similar communities it didn't take me long to start asking like why that was the case, and so I spent a lot of time trying to figure that out and Eventually, I was led to examples of human behavior that seemed like very good candidates for the causative factors of the bear behavior. And yes, I'm talking about people not managing their waste streams uh, or their garbage streams and their bird feeders and stuff properly, uh, and therefore kind of like teaching bears that houses are, are good places to come to for food. And then there were other people who were actively feeding the bears for the joy of watching them eat. The discussions about why people weren't following state guidelines and were making all these calories available for the bears led me to the realization that they viewed those recommendations as impingements on their freedom. You know, the back-off government. You can't tell me whether or not to leave my bird feeder out and that was just yeah you know, so, so odd to me, it kind of like you know, gradually dawned on me uh, that this culture that I was seeing uh, of uh, kind of anti government uh, sentiment was a direct result of the Freetown project, which was you know the only other big, unusual landscape shifting event that that had happened in that town,
0: comparing Grafton to the rest of New Hampshire, you mentioned that New England is full of small towns with colorful stories that probably are worth exploring for people that are doing their travel. What's your sense or how can you compare that to just, I guess, New Hampshire as a whole? Like, is everybody have that live free or die <laughs> slogan sort of front and center, no matter what conversation you have? Or does, does Grafton in particular really stand out as just completely different?
1: I would say New Hampshire as a whole definitely leans that way. They're a little odd because they're in New England. So there's kind of like a a leftist tilt to New England. But they're also really into the idea of freedoms and the way that, you know, maybe uh, we might stereotype Texans as being, right? Yeah, you know, that they really you know, get, get off my back. And also what's unique about New Hampshire is that not only does it have that Lovely tradition of communities being able to shape their own destiny to some extent at town meetings where every every citizen in the town can get up and uh, argue over whether or not the roads ought to be plowed tw- twenty times a year or thirty times a year, you know that they they can really get involved with the nitty gritty of, of the the rules and details of their lives, so that's a very empowering kind of landscape to grow up in, uh, a laudable one, I should say. And then also on top of that, you have New Hampshire's status as first in the nation primary. So they are used to presidential candidates and vice presidential candidates coming to their state spending hours and hours and hours in active discussions with the citizenry of New Hampshire. So so New Hampshire is is unique in that uh, you have a lot of citizens who are very empowered for for better and for worse – Uh, and who take that that dedication to freedom very, very seriously. There was a Jehovah's Witness who wanted to block out the or die part on his license plate, because the license plate said live free or die, and and went against his religious principles. So he he blocked it out, and and they threw him in jail. It's very deeply ingrained. New Hampshire is unique in the nation, and then Grafton itself is kind of unique to New Hampshire, because as I say in the book— once upon a time did not want to be a part of New Hampshire at all. They want they were so anti-tax that they voted to secede from New Hampshire and the rest of the United States so that they could join Vermont, which at that time was an independent republic that had no taxes at all. And they were so like anti-tax even back then that that's what they wanted to do. And when New Hampshire kind of like reasserted control over them, it was a little bit like having like an occupying force and an enemy occupying force. And that created like a legacy that is kept grafted in, in an anti-governmental attitude uh, for, for ever, you know, a, ever since colonials came in and, and took the land from the uh, native Abenaki.
0: Which, again, goes back to I appreciate the amount of history that you have in there. And, yeah, that's right. It was uh, from the very beginning and sort of this prolonged chip on I guess the people's shoulder that never necessarily went away. Again, maybe even another lesson learned that, uh, gosh, I don't want to say get with the times. That sounds terrible, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, things evolve, <laughs> things evolve. Uh, and, and so it makes sense for, for people to, to, to go along with change that could possibly be changed for the better. Actually, that also made me think of something else that, that kept, Being an image in my mind as far as people working together is, I just kept thinking of evolution. Uh, Lair, you know, at some point in evolution, you got to assume that apes said, Hey, if we work together, we're not going to keep getting eaten by these creatures. (laughs) Let's just call them bear like, right? (laughs) Uh, And so there is very much a, a benefit to everybody to be working together for some sort of common goal, which I think if we really boil it down, that's what. Put humans where they're at for for better or worse. So uh, again, just something else I think that people can can gain from the story of a small town where these decisions of individual folks that go further than than larger metro areas and things like that. Uh, the, there's probably some 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 things to be learned as well there. Yeah,
1: yeah, and you know, a, a lot of times people say, yeah, they think of uh, well, like. I feel like conservatives love to talk about evolution as kind of like a metaphor for society, you know, like, uh, you know, survival of the fittest. Yeah. That, that is, that is, you know, got to be in the top 10 phrases that they use to kind of like justify their their um, ideas of, of uh, free market capitalism, right? Well, yeah, survival of the fittest, yeah. So if if somebody gets older and and infirm and and, uh, falls by the wayside, that's on them. But in fact, nature is equally full of examples of communal uh, civic, if you will, cooperation within species and even among different species. You know, we've recently learned that forests are actually sharing uh all, nutrients among all the trees in the forest and mushrooms kind of like shuttling it back and forth underground through this like network uh so that they can all thrive together uh and, and that is uh uh something that that we forget about too much i think
0: point well taken um as far as and community i think that that's really what we're 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 boiling it down to yeah
1: yeah yeah
0: and and, and speaking of that taking care of each other and again i mentioned there's certainly a health aspect, and that's another core topic for the show. So let's talk about that a little bit. As as I mentioned, you have a whole section dedicated to the history of uh, a specific. Um, I think it's parasite, right? That uh, yeah. it it's, is supposed to affect decision making, and and gosh, even gets into free will, which obviously is one of the primary tenets of being a staunch libertarian and people would certainly argue for being American in general. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? And then uh, also be curious on your thoughts of just, I think there's a lot of mental health (laughs) examples we could talk about.
1: Yeah, so uh, the nutshell is wash your hands or a parasite might turn you into its zombie and, and make you do things you don't want to do, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> exactly. That, that's the top line. That was just just an, another argument for hygiene. Um, but what I found uh, in my research on this was that uh, there is a parasite called T. Gandhi that creates, uh, when it infects you, you have toxoplasmosis which you may have heard in connection to reasons why pregnant women should avoid cat litter, uh, but because they, they might get toxoplasmosis, right? And so what this is, is it's a little parasite. It breeds inside a cat. The cat craps out eggs. Those eggs hatch, and then you have tiny little T. Gandhi uh, that are looking for ways to hook up with each other. And so they are often found in rats, right? They, they, they uh, wind up uh, getting picked up by a rat or some other rodent, and then they infect that rat. And once it gets inside the rat, its mission is to get back inside the cat again. And that is difficult because rats avoid cats, So T. Gandhi's uh, solution to this problem, how am I going to get back inside the cat, is to mess with the chemistry of the rat's brain so that the rat doesn't perceive danger in the same way. And when it smells cat urine, instead of getting frightened, it gets kind of aroused and is drawn to it. When something dangerous happens, the rat doesn't flee like it ought to. Uh, and instead, you know, it, it gets aggressive, and, and it becomes a big risk taker. And all of those behavioral changes make it more likely that the rat's going to get killed by a cat, and that that will allow the parasite to get back inside the cat guts, which is what it wanted all along. So it's very much in the parasite's favor. It's very much against the best interests of the rat. And so what's really interesting about this parasite is that it doesn't just affect rats. It affects almost any mammal that you can think of, uh, including both bears and humans. If you come into contact with this parasite, it can get inside your body, and then it will wind up heading up into your brain, and it will alter your brain's chemistry so that you become more of a risk taker if you're susceptible to like schizophrenia this might make you more susceptible it, it might cause you to get into car accidents more often because you become a more aggressive driver and just like the rat you don't perceive risk and reward in quite the same way anymore you're you're more prone to bold aggressive behavior and In Grafton, because of the Freetown Project, you had a lot of men with guns living in armed camps, uh, kind of like scattered throughout the town. This is how far things devolve over the course of the book, where you have these like little communities where it might be like a yurt next to a garden shed next to a trailer. And these guys are living here. Uh, And those things, and then you know maybe right across the mountain you got tent city where you got a bunch of guys set up in tents, and then maybe in another one you got some uh, campers set up or or some little cabins, Uh, and all of the that that real hodgepodge, which is not regulated in any way by zoning regulations because Grafton has no zoning. They all come up with their own solutions for waste management, right? And, And so what that means is that. A lot of them don't have access to free and easy running water, hot water, places to put their their sewage, and that is a very fertile breeding ground for these parasites. It makes them more likely to get infected. Because bears are so omnivorous and they're not above scavenging on things, bears are actually one of the other animals that's very likely to be infected by uh, T. Gandhi. And if you have a bear that's eaten a cat, well, then, of course, that bear is at a much higher risk of being infected and becoming more aggressive than in any other case. What I learned and and what I uh, talk about in the book is the very high likelihood that a lot of the brinksmanship between man and bear in this town is actually being driven by, you know, uh, kind of like unconsciously and unintentionally by this parasite dwelling inside their brains.
0: I'll be honest. I, I kind of want to just end on that story because I'm, I'm laughing as, <laughs> as, as you are very um, matter-of-factly going through the details, you know, bears <laughs> eating cats. I'm, I'm chuckling to myself. And, and that's, again, I think encapsulates <laughs> just, again, the tone. And everything that's going on in the story. But I I will.
1: uh, Wash your hands, kids. (laughs) Yeah. yeah.
0: So, but I I will try to uh, hit maybe that last part of, I guess, on a serious note. uh, Mental health, of course, is something that's been in the forefront, I think, nationally more and more, and again, rightfully so. And there's an easy statement to make that. There are folks here that probably could could use some analysis. Do you, do you think there's anything to be drawn in the health world just as far as, again, from a community standpoint and making sure people don't get uh, too far gone one way or the other that we can use for our own mental health and then even again, just, just taking care of others?
1: There's a lot of connective tissue here because – the same lack of hand hygiene or you know, lack of hygienic living conditions and, and uh, uh, bad behaviors that can lead to the spread of infection of toxoplasmosis is also a risk factor for all sorts of other unpleasant health conditions that can aggravate mental health. And you also have right now this thing about masks That has other people extending the risk factors uh, for coronavirus and probably other things that that can negatively impact their mental health. The position that I take in the book is that it's not enough to just kind of say, Oh, these guys are ridiculous. Of course they should be wearing masks. Of course they should be washing their hands. Of course they should be providing themselves with access to running water. There's a, a real disconnect. Between those people and the people who would kind of uh, shame them, <laughs> yeah, you know, like, like shaming them is not going to change their behavior. and they have a real resistance to traditional public health messaging, as we've seen. You know? and right now, in this day and age, it is a uh, vituperative, belligerent resistance to public health information. As long as a sizable minority, of this country is so resistant to following the advice uh, that will benefit themselves and, and their health and the health of everybody else. We have to continuously think of new ways to communicate those messages. Recognize that it's not just that they're unwilling to learn, uh, but that it's that I, I think on the left and among some circles of government. We just kind of like to say, well, you know, we put the information out there and if they're too stupid to follow it, uh, and that kind of makes us feel good because we feel so smart because we're washing our hands. It's kind of mired in that dynamic of patting ourselves on the back for our virtues and pointing a negative finger at somebody else for their faults. I think you're going to get a lot of pushback and not do what you could be doing to achieve your goals, which is to make everybody safe and healthy and happy.
0: And right now uh, it really shows what can occur if if we uh, can't compromise, I think is even some of the thing that it comes down to.
1: Yeah. And I don't even know if it's compromise so much as just like, uh, coming, coming from a different angle. I I wrote a story uh, that's going to be published in the Weather Channel soon that shows how there's a lot of great research demonstrating that board games can be a really effective kind of like Trojan horse for delivering information past those defenses and educating and teaching people better behavior. There's a, a woman named Mary Flanagan who's done some great research in that area. She's a Dartmouth professor. And she has come up with some games that will teach people how to act better when they're confronted with like cases of gender bias in social situations. So like there, there are ways to teach that are, that, that go above and beyond uh, just kind of putting the information out there. And I think we, we have to get very smart about how we're going to make sure that The kid who's playing video games and maybe uses a bigoted term and then is called a racist or a homophobe does not, in his defensiveness, automatically discount all racism and bigotry. You know, we have to find a way to tell that kid that the language is inappropriate without putting that kid on the defensive and drumming them out of the political circles that we want them to be in.
0: And hey, you're hitting another core topic of the show. Now, unfortunately, we don't have time to jump into that in the world of parenting and children and so on. See, I, I thought the great idea was going to be, I'll make a Dungeons and Dragons where if you put on a mask, you get an extra hit point. Yes, yes. <laughs> and maybe, maybe that will resonate. <laughs> but uh, Matt, before I Letting you go. Do you want to go ahead and give your contact information, maybe where people can find you on social media? And of course, people can get the book on Amazon, but if there's other ways that they should go out and absolutely get your get a copy of your book?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you so much, Greg, once again, for having me on. Yeah, people, I, I hope you buy this book. Uh, I put a lot into it. I hope folks who read it will laugh and learn a little something. And then hopefully laugh a little bit more. You can find it on Amazon. It's called A Libertarian Walks Into a Bear. If you prefer not to support the Death Star of retail, you can go to IndieBound, which will uh, give you the Amazon experience while connecting you with your local independent bookstore. And you can also just walk into your local bookstore or call them up. They would be so delighted to hear from you. Uh, And have you ask for this book and uh, get it into your hands. For me, myself, I would love if you followed me or checked in with me on Twitter at h underscore Matt. I've recently run a song contest on my Twitter account and am in the process of telling 50 crazy bear stories that have happened in the last couple of months. Uh, So so there's some uh, fun stuff to do. And I would also love to get an email at my uh, Gmail account, which is matt.honghet, H-O-N-G-H-E-T, at gmail.com
0: perfect and of course I will put all of the links into the show notes to make it easier for folks to uh, get a hold of you and as well as get a copy of the book so again reminder a libertarian walks into a bear it's a fun read informative read funny read so I think it appeals to any and everyone and will we'll hit some interest that you have Matt I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to join me today and we'll be in touch Greg, thanks so much. I hope everybody has a great day. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get podcasts. If you'd like to be notified of future weekly episodes, please hit the subscribe button. If you'd like to help us even further, visit SuburbanFolk.com and you'll find a donate button where all the money goes back into the show for you. Thanks for listening. Suburban Folk is part of the Pod All The Time podcasting network with 12 other great podcasts. Head over to SuburbanFolk.com for links to their shows. We're also part of the Ring Media Network. Go to RingMedia.com to learn more. That's R-R-I-N-G Media.com.